Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. While Canadian politics is relatively boring compared with our counterparts to the South, we are seeing the same process of capitalist crisis and developing revolutionary consciousness underneath the surface, looking for a place to break out. In this episode, Fightback editor Alex Grant discusses class struggle in Canada, the failure of leadership. Greetings, everybody. It's fantastic to see you after, yes, almost two years apart before we actually saw see each other in three dimensions. It's, you know, it's, it's like a virtual reality experience, you know. Uh, Facebook and uh, Meta would be very proud of us right now. You know, we should be having goggles on right now. But uh, it's great. We've got folks here from Halifax <laughs> and Victoria. And everywhere in between, we've got Vancouver, we've got Edmonton, we've got Calgary, we've got uh, Grand Prairie. Yep. Uh, we've got Windsor, Waterloo, Guelph. Halifax, Toronto, <laughs> uh, Kingston, Ottawa, uh, Gatineau, Montreal, Sherbrooke, and back to Halifax again. <laughs> and I, it's, it's so inspiring to see how we've grown, how you know, so many new faces. Yes, as Renu said, please get in the habit of just proactively introducing yourself. Uh, because I'm terrible at names just to start with, and uh, and I, I will I, I'm totally overwhelmed right now. Uh, but when you talk about being you know personally overwhelmed uh, with regard to Canadian politics, I, I'd have to say that I'm slightly underwhelmed. Uh, that what's happening? Well, uh, does anybody remember that there was a federal election a month ago? No, 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 me neither, right? Uh, it was the most pointless election possible because all of the politicians had absolutely nothing to say about the needs of working class people, especially in the pandemic. It was the Seinfeld election, although I think many of you are too young to understand that joke. Uh, and, and that shows our growth amongst the youth. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that I have to watch my jokes, um, but it's this. Yes, it's really the election about nothing. So nobody cared. Nobody cared. But that does not mean there's nothing going on. In fact, there is an incredible groundswell of anger, an incredible groundswell of anger coming up from below. And it has no expression. That is the main lesson of these perspectives discussion, is things aren't quiet because everybody's happy. Things are quiet because they have no means of expressing the deep felt anger. And there's a couple of exceptions of expressions of that anger. But on the main, it's like, you know, uh, you'd think we hadn't gone through a pandemic where 10,000 plus people had died. No, 20,000 people in Ontario, uh, 25,000 people in Canada have died, largely due to the negligence and profiteering of the capitalist class, especially in long-term care. How for profits, they just let these people die utterly scandalous and you'd think that never happened and at the same time Canadian billionaires what is it I think they gained 78 billion dollars it's probably higher now in the middle of the pandemic that uh, at the same time where workers were forced on the front lines to get sick and some of them die like Amazon Jeff Bezos bringing in billions and billions and billions of dollars spending it flying to space, well, barely, and uh, at the same time, the transit worker, bus driver, 
taking those workers to the Mississauga Amazon plant. Mass outbreak at the plant. Young guy gets sick, dies. That is the social murder of capitalism. But if you talk to the politicians, it'd be like, this never happened. None of this happened. Uh, and now they're coming to, to cut, to cut, to cut, to cut uh, on the standards of conditions that working class people face. That's the situation. And it has massive effects on popular consciousness. Yep. They, actually, Canadian pollsters tend to not like asking questions like this. Uh, the American pollsters, uh, yeah, you see, we've seen that quite often. They've seen massive support for socialism, for even communism in the States. But in Canada, it's been like a conspiracy of silence. Well, finally, one of them actually dared ask this. Uh, are you in favor or opposed to moving away from capitalism? 35% of Canadians are opposed to capitalism. That's huge. That's huge. That's over 11 million adults, right? Which is more than enough for us to discuss politics with, I may add. Uh, it gives us more than enough of a constituency to work upon to build revolutionary Marxism. But you could think, okay, 35%, that's not enough. That's not a revolution. Well, it isn't a revolution. But when you compare it, who actually supports capitalism is 25%. 25%. So more, there's more of us than them, even ideologically. There's definitely more of us than them economically. And, uh, and that's the, the groundswell of opinion. I think it's something like 89% uh, of Canadians are in favor of taxing the rich. 70% want a redistribution of wealth. Overwhelmingly, sentiments are far to the left. Far, to the left, far, far more left-wing than they have ever been in the last hundred years almost. But there is no expression. There is no expression for that anger. I may add, 35%. Again, you may think that's not very much. But the actual proportion of the electorate that voted for this liberal government is 20%. Right? And no party is opposing capitalism. You know, maybe, maybe the NDP bureaucrats could listen to that and think that they could win an election on 35% of the population. They could be a total uh, landslide on that basis. But no, no, modest change within the system and in the, in the system in crisis, that means you don't get to change very much at all. Right? That's the situation we are in. Now, I spoke, of, I made a few jokes about the election being incredibly boring, and it was, and it's tempting to think about nothing has changed. And actually, that's not true. It's not true to say that the election is nothing has changed. The election, uh, electorally, in terms of the, uh, the seat count in the House of Commons, yes, almost nothing changed. One or two seats here or there. But in reality, the situation is, is that every single party in the federal parliament is discredited. Every single one of them that sits there. Trudeau called this snap election opportunistically to try and get a majority to do what? Push through austerity. That's what the capitalists want. That's what the liberal base street backers want. And, and for those of you who are a bit older, you may or may not remember John Chrétien. He actually recently came out of the, the crypt uh, to uh, make some statements, uh, incredibly racist statements. He, when he was the Indigenous Affairs Minister in the 60s and drafted the white paper, he was totally unaware of residential school abuse. Utterly scandalous. And, and that's, what, that's the true face of liberalism. Utterly scandalous, that, that real racism behind the smiling face and the nice haircut. Uh, although I noticed they, they polled him, uh, so tr they polled Trudeau, so he got rid of his beard. You know, uh, younger, fresher, more bankrupt than ever before. Um, so, uh, but
But they tried to get their majority uh, just like they did back in the early 90s. And the election, I think, it, what was it, 93? Uh, the 93 election destroyed the old uh, PC party. The progressive conservatives, uh, the old Mulroney conservatives went down to, uh, from majority government to two seats. Well, the Liberals won that election on the basis of the Red Book. And the Red Book was a whole series of reforms, including such things as pharmacare, universal childcare. This is 30 years ago. And they're, they're only just maybe getting around to pharmacare, oh, sorry, to childcare, but uh, nothing on pharmacare still. And they, they got into power on the basis of, uh, of some reforms and proceeded to enact the worst austerity in Canadian history. The worst austerity was by Chrétien Martin in 95-96. Uh, we should never forget that. And, and that actually created a lot of the crises we're holding, seeing today in long-term care, in, in, in uh, public health, and in homelessness, the reduction in social housing funding. So that's the legacy of the Liberals, and that was their plan, to get a quick majority government to enact that austerity, make the working class pay for the crisis. They did not get their wish. At the same time, so the Liberals are weaker, and now they're weakened for trying to put through austerity. And you see, they, they have no platform. They have no platform right now. In fact, you know, again, that was their problem in the election. It's like, well, why do you need an election? What do you want to do? And they couldn't say what they wanted to do, because what they wanted to do was austerity. Fake left, govern right. Uh, in fact, what are they likely to do in the coming months is uh, push through legislation, not against the far right, but against extremism. This is what we warned about when we said, when they put the Proud Boys on the terrorism list. We said, be very careful what you wish for. The job of fighting the far right is not that of the state. The state doesn't care about the far right. They will use the spectre of the far right to hit against the left. And Trudeau recently said, yes, we're fighting extremism on the far right and on the far left. And you know where the teeth and the fist in that legislation will be? Will be against the left and not the right. The only way to fight the far right is by working class means, not through the capitalist state and definitely not through the liberals and a fake horseshoe theory or any of that BS. So that's the platform of the liberals. Now, the conservatives are also incredibly discredited. Uh, they can't figure out whether they're, you know, anti-abortion, anti-maskers, anti-vax, uh, or whether they're liberal light. Uh, so uh, O'Toole, I, I had to struggle to remember his name because he's so nondescript. Actually, I think that's a common problem with the politicians this day. You have to think, what on earth are they called? Because they're all a complete absence of talent, a complete absence of personality or charisma or anything else. So you just struggle to you know, name these uh, soulless suits with no head and no brain, right? It's, uh, that's the sort of nature of capitalist politics. It, it is a sort of a, an amusing expression of the generalized crisis that they have no answers, so they provide people with no faces. So, and, and, that, and uh, who knows where they're going to uh, ditch uh, O'Toole and uh, provide another O'Toole, or pro provide, uh, maybe they'll try going far right again, uh, but they're in crisis. But the NDP also, the federal NDP, totally failed to enthuse people. And objectively, yeah, they had some mild reforms. Uh, this is more to the left of Mulcair, but that's really not saying very much. And it is nowhere near the nature of the crisis, nowhere near expressing the solutions that the crisis needs. And everybody knows that. Absolutely everybody knows that when there have been 
billions upon billions and billions of dollars of bailouts to the rich and the bankers and the corporations uh, in terms of the wage subsidy, especially $100 billion of that, which the NDP takes credit for, the main corporate subsidy program, they take credit for, but then $700 plus billion of uh, hidden uh, loans, tax, uh, so interest-free loans and potentially forgivable loans to the main corporations. The NDP's got almost nothing to say about that, nothing to say about nationalization, make the bosses pay. It is just minor tinkering with reforms, which does not express the solution to the crisis. We're really asked to be, we paid for them, we should own them, right? Uh, those They shouldn't have been bailouts. They should have been expropriations. That people rely upon these services and a small parasitic capitalist class profits off them while the rest of us pay more and more in daily fees, in rent, in cost of food, the rest of that. Uh, we got sold out, they got bailed out. So none of that language from the NDP, absolutely none of that language. And in fact, as soon as anybody, any NDP candidate got anywhere close to that kind of anti-capitalist language, they are purged by the bureaucracy, right? And uh, Jessa McLean, uh, former NDP candidate, uh, detailed exactly how that happened. That, you know, nobody would pick up her phone calls, answer her emails. It was like a, a wall of silence in order to even try to be a candidate. You know, where is the form? And if you managed to find the form, I guess you'd have to sort of demonstrate at their front door or something. It's like, give us the form to apply then they, they never actually let you pass the vetting, right? So, and, and, and definitely if you express any solidarity with the Palestinian people, the oppressed Palestinian people, that's it, you're right out, right? So extreme bureaucratic control, that's the nature of social democracy. It's actually quite laughable that, you know, they, uh, they accuse Marxists have been dictatorial when extreme bureaucratic control. We stand on the basis of workers' democracy, not just political democracy, but economic democracy and full discussion and debate and democratic decision. And this is part of the meeting we are having today. Genuine working class rank and file democracy and debate, unlike social democracy. Actually, the pandemic has been a godsend for these bureaucrats. Why have a real world meeting? You can charge people hundreds of dollars to come to a Zoom event where you never get to speak, right? And, and, if, and, and they can use every bureaucratic trick in the book to only allow one or two resolutions to even hit the floor. That was NDP convention, that was the uh, all these union conventions, all of these bureaucracies think this is fantastic. Well, real world politics, real world action activity is necessary for real democracy. Bottom up, workers control, rank and file control. So extreme control of the bureaucracy, so nobody's interested. And then nobody comes out to vote. So the, uh, the, the NDP, not really an option for radical youth and many people, uh, while there's many young people, while they're sympathetic to the NDP in polls, uh, the NDP comes first amongst young people. But then why go out and vote? It's not that different. And, that, and that's why they do badly in elections. Whereas if they created a mass anti-capitalist movement, yeah, you'd bet people come out. Yeah, today uh, there's mass uh, environmental demonstrations around the world against um, uh, what is it, COP26. Uh, and that's, you know, young people are willing to come out. Young people are interested and involved in politics. Actually, young people have never been so radicalized and yet never been so cynical about establishment politicians. The other party in the House of Commons, Green Party, right, in total crisis. 
absolute crisis. Uh, that you've, they elected uh, Anime Paul, uh, who's establishment right-wing green, Zionist, anti-Palestinian, and uh, had absolutely no uh, support in the election. And the party is just tearing itself apart on a class basis. There's an interesting development that uh, Dmitry Laskaris and the eco-socialists won 45% of the vote in the previous leadership contest. And there's going to be a new leadership contest in the Greens. And I wouldn't be surprised if Laskaris runs again. And he could win, although at the same time, he could be blocked from running. If you look at the, what the Blairites are doing to the Corbyn movement in Britain, I would not be surprised if they find some bureaucratic trick, trick to stop Laskaris from running. And actually, Elizabeth May wanted to uh, disallow Laskaris from running and uh, was overruled two years ago. Well, yes, yeah, about a year or two ago. And we'll see if they pull the same tricks. But, uh, there is, but there is a possibility that the eco-socialists win in the Greens. But this isn't really a natural environment for socialism that all of the establishment of the Greens is very right-wing, except maybe the Quebec Greens. And I wouldn't be surprised if Lascaris ends up winning that, then uh, there would be splits by the right-wing Greens and would leave the eco-socialists holding the election debt. So we have, but we have to keep an eye on that. You have to keep an eye on that. Maybe something interesting will happen there. And, and, we, and we definitely uh, uh, give the eco-socialists uh, all the support uh, and, we, and we hope they do win. But uh, we'll see whether that takes off. We'll see that, whether that takes off and whether people think that the Greens is a, a useful venue for struggle. That remains to be seen. Maybe that will come up in the discussion. Uh, about the Greens. So who actually benefited from this election? Who actually benefited from this election? Well, yes, you had the Bloc, who managed to hold their position from the previous. And, I, and I'll talk about Quebec later, because this is about, there is a uh, the, the nationalist movement, which in the, the 70s had a social democratic tinge but it is definitely turned, the Quebec nationalist movement has turned to identity nationalism. So Legault and the Bloc are, are waging a war on wokeism, which is something that doesn't exist. And, uh, but I, I'll get back to that later. And the basis of, upon that uh, identity nationalism, uh, the, the Bloc managed to maintain its vote. But that is fundamentally untenable. I'll, I'll come back to that later. But the people who really gained out of the election, but I said that every party, pretty much every party in Parliament is worse off. But there is one party that did very well out of the election, and I'm sad to say that was the People's Party of Canada, the far right, increased their vote to about 5%. And this is exactly what we explained, exactly what we explained in the Canadian Perspectives document that we discussed and voted on back in May, that capitalism in crisis leads doesn't lead to moving to the right. It does. It leads to polarization. Right. It leads to a collapse of the middle. The collapse of the middle. I don't like using the word the centre because it implies permanence. And liberalism is not the center, it is merely the middle. You move society to the left and the middle changes. You know, at one point, uh, you know, the Mensheviks on paper were uh, radical Marxist uh, revolutionaries and in the middle of a revolutionary situation, they were the center. So the center moves uh, so, and the middle is a temporary phenomenon. But I guess liberalism is currently the middle and is in, gets discredited by the crisis because people hate the status quo. Why do they hate the status quo? Because it is hateful. It is not succeeding to provide what people need and therefore it collapses. And people look for anti-establishment 
alternatives, and that could be anti-establishment arguments of the left or anti-establishment arguments of the far right. And unlike the left, the far right actually have unapologetic leaders. They're leaders that are not afraid to mobilize their base, unlike the working class and unlike the left, who currently have a bankrupt leadership. And on that basis, the PPC and Bernier uh, were able to gain support and mobilize the largest election rallies on the basis of anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers, uh, anti-immigrant people. When the conservatives were turning to a soft left, uh, left, you know, from a perspective of conservatism, red Toryism, and uh, and that is going to increase in the crisis. It's not just going to go away. Same as Trumpism in the states is not going to go away because the crisis causes that. And the only way to defeat the anti-establishment ideas of the right, who say, blame immigrants, blame scientists, blame, blame whoever, uh, blame the poor, the only way to defeat that is anti-establishment ideas of the left. Like, who's, who's more likely to be responsible for the crisis in society? Is it some poor soul escaping a war zone with just the clothes on their back? Or is it the bankers and the bosses and the billionaires who actually run the system? I think our arguments are a little bit more logical. And therefore, that shows why 35% of Canadians oppose capitalism, while 89% are for uh, taxing the rich and 70% think the system's unjust, right? So overwhelmingly, public sentiment is to the left, but that public sentiment has no organization expression and organization really matters, really matters. It's a lesson for our anarchist friends. Organization really matters. Why do you think the PPC are rising up and the left is in crisis? Because the left has terrible organization and the far right have unapologetic leaders who aren't afraid to mobilize people. That is the lesson working class organization really matters. Uh, so I, focus, I st started off with politics, and, uh, which is often backwards because we often, often start with economics to provide you know, the economic foundation to the political superstructure. Uh, but going back to the economics of the situation, again, we predicted exactly what is happening now in our Canadian Perspectives document May of this year. Really encourage everybody listening to this, go back, reread that. And uh, you had the extreme crisis of the pandemic, a crisis of overproduction, and the massive injection of bailouts and corporate welfare and deficit financing. The combined uh, Canadian debt, government debt, uh, which is federal, provincial, and municipal, has rocketed up to 117% of GDP. Traditionally, when this figure gets above 100%, that's when economies are entering into crisis. Greece, in 2009, went through, it was in a sing similar debt-to-GDP level that Canada is in currently. Uh, it's rocketed up, mainly due to corporate bailouts and the, uh, the collapse in government revenues. And the way that they solved that was massive printing money. Billions and billions of dollars of printing money. I think, I think they printed something like $350 billion last year, or the last 12 months. Uh, I think it was revealed that the biggest source of income for the federal government was quantitative easing, printing money. So this is just imaginary money being printed. And totally unsurprising to us, anyway, was this is leading to inflation. This is leading to inflation. So now inflation in Canada is above 4%. Uh, in, in the States, it's above 5%. Although I, I hear that the, uh, 
in the States, they include second-hand cars, and that isn't included in the Canadian statistic. So if you include, apparently, if you include second-hand cars in the Canadian statistic, it is more like 5%. And this is making the workers pay. This is making the workers pay for the crisis. We, that's the other main theme of our Canadian Perspectives document. They want to make the workers pay, and they can make the workers pay in one of two ways. One, directly. Cuts, austerity, cutting back on wages, cutting back on jobs, public, uh, public sector cuts. That's one way they, they can make the workers pay. The other way they can make the workers pay is print money, low interest rates, causes increase the money supply, causes inflation, combined with these uh, bottlenecks in production. Inflation, everybody's poorer because the increased cost of living, because of the reduced value of money. That is also making the workers pay. So you pick your poison. Do you want to yep, lose your job or do you want to not be able to afford groceries? Pick your poison. In some ways, inflation is a bit more democratic in that in the Great Depression, uh, there wasn't inflation, there was deflation. And 25% of the working class lost their jobs and was in, were in abject crisis, mass explosion of homelessness. People riding the rails and in, and in uh, encampments. Hobo villages, I think they called them at the time. Uh, but today, okay, there's not as many layoffs. In fact, they got a, a, a labor shortage. And uh, well, it's a labor shortage for people willing to do utterly terrible minimum wage, part-time shift work uh, at the beck and call of an insulting boss who doesn't care about you one little bit. Uh, so yes, people are sick of that and not willing to do do that. But in exchange, you know, I don't know about you, but you know, I, I've got to do my groceries and they used to cost me $100. Now they cost me $140, $150. And I'm buying the same stuff. Actually, I'm not even buying the same stuff. I'm buying less. And, and, and many other people are in the same boat. Well, everybody's in the same boat. And it's a bit more democratic, I guess. We're all poorer. Right? We're all poorer. And, and to a certain degree, that is more conducive to class struggle. This is like the 1970s. Decade of inflation, epoch of inflation, and that was also the decade of massive strikes. Internationally, Canada is notwithstanding. And, and that is why we are beginning to launch this campaign about picket lines mean do not cross, because you bet you can betcha there's going to be a ton of picket lines. There's going to be an absolute ton of picket lines in the years to come as workers try to keep up with the cost of living. And, and we should do some work going back into the struggles of the 70s and of the 30s and, and other key struggles of how uh, workers won the right to strike in the public sector QP, CUPW, postal workers, they, they went on really important strikes. In fact, there was a, uh, a QP did a, a, a one-day general strike in the 70s. That's something we should uh, write about and re-educate people about, get, get back that lost history of struggle, because boy, has it been lost in the labor movement. We're seeing the prospect of inflation, 4 or 5%, every year. This really uh, expresses the crisis in the class struggle, in wage negotiations. Because what have we seen over the last 20, 30 years? Workers have largely, unionized workers especially, have signed contracts with zero or 1% wage increases every year. Workers don't like this. Workers never like this. But it was like, well, at least I'm keeping my job. And, you know, keep your head down. Things will get better. 
union bureaucrats say, oh yeah, this is just temporary. Soon things will go back to normal like the 50s and 60s. When, when, when in fact, if you look at history, you realize it's the 50s and 60s at the aberration. And in fact, it is a century of capitalist crisis with that brief period of respite, right? Whereas the reformist bureaucrats see that as the normal. I ain't coming back anytime soon, my friends and brothers and sisters. It isn't. In fact, it's more crisis and more inflation. But workers would stomach a zero or one when inflation is just one or two percent. Right? It's, it's just a minor erosion of their standard of living. But will workers stomach zeros and ones when inflation is four and five percent? Right? Add it up. Okay, okay. Four percent doesn't sound very much. But in three years, you are 12% poorer than you used to be, right? Over the life of a contract. Workers aren't going to stand for it. Workers aren't going to stand for it. And, and this is the answer also to the reformists who weren't willing to break with capitalism. I said, oh, no, no, we can just have, you know, uh, mixed, uh, modern monetary theory, print money, doesn't matter. Or UBI, give a cash handout doesn't matter. It, oh, don't worry about inflation. Don't worry about inflation. I guarantee every worker worries about their grocery bill going from 100 to 150 and filling up the tank of gas going from 50 to 70. Everybody cares about that. And that is something everybody understands. It is really, really obvious. So Workers are going to demand that they keep up with the cost of, of living. Absolutely. And that is going to put huge pressure on these union bureaucracies to fight. Because that's the only way to keep up. And they have been, this, these bureaucracies have been doing absolutely everything in their power to stop workers from fighting. Absolutely. There's the most disgusting example recently. Uh, uh, the superstore workers in Alberta, 97% strike vote, 97% strike vote. It, I, actually, it's, it's like almost every workplace takes strike votes in the 90s. There's even been 100% strike votes. Workers willing to fight. And, and then you've got the bureaucracy coming in like a you know, bureaucratic version of the ice bucket challenge. You know, pouring ice water over the heads of the workers. Oh no, cool down, cool down, don't fight, don't struggle, don't, you know, the, uh, uh, what is it? So they put out this letter saying that, you know, oh, a strike, it's going to be long, it's going to be terrible, we're probably going to lose, it's pointless. And, and still 33% of the workers said no, they want to fight, even though the leadership said that they weren't willing to lead. Soldiers are willing to fight. Soldiers are willing to fight uh, for a just cause. But are they willing to fight if their officer comes up to them and says, hey, I'm a coward and I'm going to betray you? So uh, that explains why, you know, you could say oh, only 33% were willing to strike. So like, no, 33% oh, were able, were willing to defy the anti-strike organizing of the bureaucracy. And 66% were thinking, well, if we don't have decent leaders, what, is, what hope is there of winning? Because people don't just strike for the fun of it. They strike because they hope to gain something. Uh, and expressing this contradiction is what we're seeing in New Brunswick right now. The smallest amount of leadership, the smallest amount of leadership, uh, and we saw... This week, are one of the largest demonstrations in, in New Brunswick history. Thousands and thousands of people out, the 10 QP locals on strike and for wages mostly, keep up with the cost of living. I'm not saying that the QP New Brunswick leadership is perfect. In fact, they've been reducing their, their wage demands, which actually isn't a good idea. Uh, you should say what is just. You know, they originally called for 5% wage increases per year, but they, they took that back to three and maybe a little bit lower. And 
you, sh you shouldn't do that in front of a intransigent boss. You should say, no, 5% is just. That's what inflation is. That's what we deserve. And we've been eroded for 20, 30 years. We deserve that. And, and you show strength because weakness invites aggression. But to their credit, they are fighting and they are actually striking. And you saw incredible movement from the workers. Finally, someone fighting, someone striking. And that brings out the creativity and the energy of the working class, uh, this incredible outlet. We'll see what happens. Now the government is utterly disgustingly using pandemic emergency measures to defeat the workers. Scandalous, criminal, uh, to use it for economic reasons. Ut yeah, and, and you, you wonder why the, it actually gives these anti-vaxxers kind of a point against state intervention, right? And we did warn about that when they were implementing these emergency measures that they did put in a clause to direct labor, right? Totally unnecessary because work, workers aren't going to allow people to die. It, it is quite insulting. I've been on hospital picket lines many times. And actually, I was on a hospital picket line in Vancouver uh, almost 20 years ago now. And I was talking to a sort of a nurse on the picket line. And, and she was saying, well, first of all, yeah, we determine sort of essential services. If, for example, there was a, a crash on the highway and a bunch of uh, casualties came in, we'd pull nurses off the picket line right away. Uh, to treat them. But the irony is, is actually with the government underfunding and the understaffing, the essential service levels are higher than the general staffing levels that these hospitals work under. But uh, the, the workers are perfectly capable of running them that themselves without the government misusing and abusing this legislation. Now, we'll see what QP in New Brunswick does. Maybe they'll defy. Maybe they'll defy, maybe they won't. That is another question that gets raised, that every time workers have an effective strike, government legislation comes down, back to work, special laws, etc. The right to strike is not worth the piece of paper it's written on. But as you see in New Brunswick, there will be these flashpoints. New Brunswick shows the future to every other province. Right? There, uh, and all excuse... All apologies to our New Brunswick comrades. It isn't the biggest, most important province. Um, but it shows the future to all the others. Ontario, Quebec, BC, Alberta, the Prairies, all the rest. There will be other mass movements like that, workers' movements, attempting to keep up with inflation. But generally... Generally, in, in most of the provinces, you're having this extreme betrayal, can't use any other word, of the Labour leadership, unwilling to fight, unwilling to mobilise people. But that contradiction with inflation is going to be expressed. That either they, there will be pressure from below that forces the leaders to lead, and there will be these flashpoints where workers are open to revolutionary conclusions, and we will be there. We will be there supporting those picket lines. We will be there saying picket lines mean do not cross and uh, winning the most class conscious, self-sacrificing and militant workers to the understanding that cap the, the problem is not this or that boss. It is the boss's system of capitalism as a whole, winning them to the revolutionary struggle and building a base and winning a revolutionary leadership for some locals in struggle. That is the task of the next five, 10 years for us. Uh, so more and more workers are gonna become radicalized. We've got to reach them. But also as more bureaucracies refuse to fight, they themselves will come under pr pressure and be kicked out, right? You think a, a union bureaucracy signing zeros is gonna be popular? No. It opens it up for more militant rank and file leaders to come forward and by a process of successive approximations, the movement radicalizes.
So because of the lack of leadership politically, in our view, the main center of struggle is going to be on the industrial field, in the union struggle, or through spontaneous mass movements over issues like the environment, over the indigenous crisis, over uh, homelessness, over Im immigration, or any number of crises. Things may blow out that none of us have ever heard of before. Uh, and so there is so much dry kindling just waiting for a spark of lightning or someone to throw a cigarette. We'll try to throw as many cigarettes as possible uh, into the dry brush of capitalism. Uh, that, that's the only pro-smoking statement you'll ever get out of me, ever. Uh, as comrades know, I am the most militant anti-tobacco uh, person imaginable. Uh, because, and, and none of you should smoke because we need you. It's a long fight. And, uh, and also walking a picket line, you need to be healthy for it. So you don't want to be wheezing on a picket line. Uh, so that's an important message from the anti-smoking uh, commissariat. Um, anyway, I digress. Um, so there's, uh, I'm, I'm running short on time. So I don't, ha I don't have time to go into sort of all of these important movements uh, against police violence and state racism, again, uh, in terms of the indigenous struggle, which has become an absolute focal point. Actually, the key thing in the indigenous struggle for the first time in Canadian history is that there is majority working class support for it, for the rights of indigenous people and the conditions of indigenous people. And, and this puts the right wing and the reactionaries in a terrible position. They want to rally around the flag and, and, and they, every time they try to rally around the flag, it's like, what about thousands upon thousands of murdered and buried indigenous children? And they have nothing to say because it's concrete and it's a very clear legacy of colonial imperialism that Canada is based upon. So uh, I don't have time for all of that here. We've discussed it in length in the past, but I, but I hope it comes up in the discussion. Now, in terms of the provinces, what is happening? So that's the general situation of the labor movement, the federal government, of the economy and inflation. Uh, in, fa in fact, uh, if you look at the budgets that uh, the you know, federal budgets, provincial budgets, they're all predicting ridiculous growth rates. In the election, ridiculous growth rates, average growth rates of 3% a year over the next, over the next decade. And, I, and, they, and they haven't seen those growth rates uh, for 50 years. And, and yet they're predicting it now. Why? Because without that, you know, things would be really bad. <laughs> uh, but there's no science behind it. And the reality is, is there's going to be uh, mostly stagnation interspersed with slump, and and, and these uh, uh, and the budget deficit is just going to get worse and worse. So the, the debt is going to get worse and worse. But what what is happening in each of the provinces? Well, in Ontario, again, we've got this uh, hated board government but really no generalized fight back. Combination of the complete absence of the NDP and the absence of the Ontario Federation of Labour, the Labour movement. Almost nothing happening. And there's going to be an election next year. In fact, uh, Ford has uh, taken a page from O'Toole's playbook and is trying to pretend he's a friend of the worker and even a friend of trade unions. But it's not a friend of trade unions. Unions. He's a friend of a couple of bureaucrats, Jerry Diaz and Smokey um, Thomas. And uh, this is a complete betrayal, but he's, he's going to try and present a sort of a soft left front, red Toryism. And he's probably done some polling, realizing that the, uh, the suburbs that voted in him, him in wanted a higher minimum wage and more workers' rights. So he's bending towards that. But again, the NDP is just totally useless. 
In fact, the NDP in Ontario is in third place, the Liberals. And here, actually, yes, I have forgotten the name of the Liberal leader. Uh, it comes and goes. Sometimes I have it, sometimes it's gone. But now, I, standing here right now, I've forgotten it. Um, and, and that is the correct political position. Uh, and uh, because he's totally faceless, nameless, and the NDP cannot even beat the, the Invisible Man. Uh, so, Del Duca, there it is. Del Duca, yes. Oh, it's gone again. Yeah. Uh, um, so, uh, so, the NDP, uh, who knows, don't predict elections, but if I was going to extrapolate a line, I'd say the NDP is going to do badly in next year's election. And, uh, and then, who knows, may, maybe... One would hope that Andrew Horvath, uh, the uh, sort of fit, the disappointing leader of the Ontario NDP, would choose that point to step down. Uh, who knows? And uh, but if a left-wing candidate comes in, well, they would have to be very left to actually make a difference. Very, very left. Like actually, even a Corbynite candidate, a Nikki Ashton-type candidate, wouldn't be left enough. Would not be left enough. You, you saw how sort of. Corbyn reached a wall in in Britain. Well, a a, a candidate socialist uh, with uh, some reforms. I think I think people wouldn't get enthused by that unless it is vociferously attacking the capitalists and the bailouts and calling for expropriation and calling to make the bosses pay. Unless it is a mass movement grassroots candidate, then uh, I don't see even a turn to the left really saving the NDP because it's not enough for the crisis. It is not sufficient for the crisis. Again, never say never. You'd have to look at movements as they uh, as they come and go. Uh, same with the Greens and the Scaris. You'd have to keep an eye on that, see if something turns up. But the degree of radicalization to express the crisis you know, from, from leadership has to be quite high. And from the existing left wing of the NDP, they're not, they're not radical enough. They're not left enough. They're, they're not militant enough. Uh, they definitely don't use the same vociferous language that the right wing use that successfully mobilizes people. So you need to be unapologetic in order to mobilize people. Uh, in BC, you've got the uh, NDP government, which actually on many issues is to the right of Doug Ford. And it's forced to push, uh, so the movements come and push uh, reforms through in Ontario against the wishes of the Ontario government. Uh, but in BC, they're slower to implement those reforms and are pushing through pipelines and are in attacking indigenous people. So there's no enthusiasm there. The other area where struggle uh, is likely to happen is Alberta. Again, everybody out east, drop your preconceptions about so-called redneck Albertans. Now, I will quote Alan Woods quoting the Bible, and you know which quote I'm going to say. You know, and the first will be last, and the last will be first, as it, as it is said by the Lord. Um, that uh, an Alberta, so-called redneck Alberta, right-wing Alberta, is at, at the front lines of the class struggle. That the ham-fisted rule of the Jason Kenney regime, uh, which is unpopular by everybody, he's not far-right crazy enough for the far-right crazies, and he's not, uh, and clearly not doing what needs to be done for the working class to stop the pandemic, profit over public health every step of the way. And so if there's a candidate for a general strike, I'd say Alberta's on the front line. The union leadership is also holding back that anger in Alberta. But there's, uh, the anger is so very immense, they may not be able to. And, uh, and so we should all watch Alberta, and it's fantastic 
it's both fantastic and symptomatic that Alberta is one of the fastest areas of growth for Marxism. Right? Edmonton, Calgary, Grand Prairie, uh, across the, the province, people are looking to an end of the crisis and revolutionary solutions. In Quebec, Quebec is supposed to be the vanguard of the class struggle. And sadly, since the defeat of, uh, I guess it was the Common Front in 2015, I think that was the last height of a workers' struggle. There's a period of intense struggle from the Quebec student strike in 2012 to uh, 2015, public sector negotiations, in, in, intense struggle period. And, and a rejection of the dichotomy between the Liberals and the Parti Québécois. The Liberals and the PQ used to get, you know, about combined above 70%, sometimes like even what, 90% of the vote combined for those two parties. And now they're not even at 30%. So those parties which, you know, uh, you had the balance between federalism and independence. And, uh, and people got sick and tired of those two parties and that uh, stale debate. And now up, came, up the middle came the CAC and the goal with nationalism, right-wing nationalism, racist nationalism. It's wrong to say that Quebec people are any more racist than the people in the rest of Canada. But yes, a capitalist class, the, uh, the ruling class in Quebec, uses racism to divide the working class. The ruling class in the rest of the country also uses racism. But it's been quite successful. Actually, Quebec has the worst death rates for COVID, and Legault is one of the most popular premiers. Unlike Ford and Kenny, which I guess are the next two worst death rates, uh, who are incredibly unpopular. But Legault has able to play, you know, uh, instead of the Grand Nasser, it's the Grand Distraction, uh, make people care about what religious coverings people have. Like, who cares? Who cares? Does this change anybody's life? Does this pay anybody's rent? Right? Who cares? See, I'm being recorded right now, so I'm really trying not to swear. Yeah. And you know, it, it doesn't. These issues don't matter, but you can you can rile everybody up and get people to vote on an issue that doesn't matter. And if there's a vacuum on the left talking about class issues, then it allows the uh, the right wing to cut across that with right wing nationalism. But I guarantee you. From being dominant, yes, the first will be last. From being dominant, these nationalist ideas will be hated by young people, will be abhorrent to young people, because they are anti-immigrant. They, uh, they are dividing people, and this government will be forced to attack, be forced to push through austerity. So from the identity nationalism being number one, a class solidarity, internationalism will become the dominant idea amongst the Quebec youth. But at the moment, we have the little darkness of Legault and, uh, and, and we have to be on the front line fighting against that. And we're, we're having a discussion on Quebec and the history of Quebec later this weekend. And it's really important that uh, revolutionaries in English Canada take a different approach from revolutionaries in French Canada. That it's our job to fight the federal state oppressing the right of self-determination of the Quebec people. That's where our emphasis is. Whereas it is the emphasis of the revolutionaries in Quebec to fight their bourgeoisie that is using divide and rule to stop the workers' movement coming forward. And above all, we, we propose internationalism, cross-Canada and international solidarity, that by workers' methods.
that is the tool and that is what we propose. So I'll bring things to a close. I'll conclude things. We have a little bit of time, but not infinite time. In fact, it's not necessarily a bad thing that there aren't mass struggles going on in every single province. Because we have been growing like never before. Again, it's fantastic to see all of your faces here in three dimensions. And we have been, the Marxist forces have been growing because we are unapologetic. And we say what needs to be said and we analyze the crisis. Marxism is all powerful because it is true, as Lenin said. And that is why we have been growing while others on the left are despondent and miserable because they're not willing to organize. They're not willing to organize and then they blame the working class for their own failures. Whereas we are confident, enthusiastic and are ready to fight. We have been growing on that basis and we've been reaching out to the 11 million Canadian, adult Canadians who oppose capitalism and also the impact of world events who are one or two steps ahead of the class struggle in Canada. That's good. We've got more than enough people to talk to. But that luxury of uh, a not much happening is not going to last very long, my comments and friends. It's not going to last very long. There will be New Brunswick's in every single province. And, and we'll find that what we have built, again, we are launching a fortnightly, incredible success. Incredible success. We turn, get the Montreal School, 500 people present, the largest Marxist meeting in Canada, regular Marxist event in person in Montreal. It's going to be utterly fantastic showing that the forces of Marxism are moving forward. These are really impressive things, but relative to the size of the working class, it's nothing. It's really nothing. So we must use this time and prepare. Use this time and prepare for the inevitable struggles that are to come. Right? That uh, we've got a good base, yes, fortnightly. We've got a good office. We've got a new office in Toronto, new printing press, building out west, building out east, become a genuine cross-Canada organization, unite the best of the revolutionaries across Canada. But it makes a huge difference whether you go into a mass movement with 500 people or 1,000 people or 2,000 or 5,000. So we must have urgency. We must have urgency to build urgency to educate, urgency to use the best real-world methods in the struggle, to be conscientious in small things as well as big. You know, the very simplest thing of how to talk to somebody, how to listen to somebody, and then follow up, actually follow up. Yeah, I, I yes, I've even found it myself. I'm a bit rusty in... Uh, yeah, you come into the real world and say, oh my God, do I actually have to talk to people now? You know, I can't just turn off the camera, you know. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, I don't like that conversation. I'll turn off the camera. You know? uh, uh, no, you don't have that option. Uh, we have to go out and educate people. We've got to show them what they already know. What they already know. People know this system is bankrupt. People know this system has to end. And we just have to say, there is an answer. There is, an, there are the ideas. There's the Marxist ideas developed over almost 200 years. And there is the organization, the international Marxist tendency that is moving forward across the planet. So let's have a fantastic weekend. Let's have a fantastic struggle and discussions. And let's build the Revolutionary Forces Comrades. Thank you. <laughs>
Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.